The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop deleting irrelevant Facebook messages and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 592 with guest Rob Howard, recorded live Saturday, June 26, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering Silverlight 4 video training with Billy Hollis on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who spent eight hours at the beach and went home with a moon tan, Carl Franklin. And we're back. And we're back with Rob Howard. Hello, Mr. Howard. It's good to hear from you guys. It's been, uh, it's been a little while. Yeah. We, we don't see you at conferences much yeah, these days. We don't see any. We don't hear from you at all. Well, you know, the type of conferences I go to has, has changed a bit over the, the past uh, past few years. I, I spend a lot more time at a lot of these new media, social networking, collaboration type conferences, like Web 2.0, E2O, those types of things. So I, I'm, I'm still pretty involved in a lot of developer activities, but I, I don't speak at a lot of developer-specific conferences anymore. But I was just, for example, at, at, uh, at the Gov 2.0 show up in D.C. speaking there about two, three weeks ago. So, Well, tell us what, what, what the heck are you working on these days? It's been so <laughs> long since we talked. Yeah, I, I, I was trying to think back to when the last time. I, I think it might have been either a tech ed or a PDC that we last uh, last sat down and chatted. My my memory is locked on that time we recorded a show with you at Dev Connections in a hotel in a hotel room. room yeah, we'd, we'd blacked out. We'd pulled all the curtains to in order to dampen the sound down. I think we were saying something really creepy, and he just sort of looked at us. Okay, guys, you're making me uncomfortable now. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yes, I do. That, that, that moment stands out in time for sure. <laughs> oh, man. As far as what we've been up to, or I've been up to, I guess, um, you know, Intelligent as a company, is, I started, it's hard to believe it's a six year old business now, started yeah. in June of 2004. And we have like clawed and scratched and worked our way to the top of um, this market. And 
have really just been having a lot of success, both with a lot of very large, high-profile um, external communities, so communities like Dell, Starbucks, um, most recently with um, working with the Department of Defense for disaster relief in Haiti. Uh, our software is actually used to coordinate all of the unclassified information sharing um, that happened between the DOD and all the different um, agencies wow. that were yeah that were helping with um, disaster relief there. From internal communities, we do a lot of work um, helping organizations use the software to really just improve the way they think about sharing information within their company. And then um, thirdly, just spending a lot of time um, with our most recent product. I, I say most recent; it's about three years old now, which is a an analytics tool. Um, really helping people understand the, the data that's created in these communities, how it's used, and how they can change behavior of customers or understand how behavior is affecting products or services they may be selling. So this is not just about community server anymore. This is not just community server anymore. No, it is not. And we shouldn't we shouldn't confuse Telligent with the telecommunications company that has one L. That's right. right? In Canada. Yeah, you're two L's, T-E-L-L-I-G-E-N-T. That's right. And it's been six years already? Isn't that longer than you were at Microsoft? You know, I was at Microsoft almost six years. I think I think I passed the... I, I've been at Intelligent longer than Microsoft now by only a, a couple months. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, it doesn't Time seem that long. It doesn't seem that long. So community server still free? You know, we have, um, so we, we rebranded the products. Um, we rebranded the products about a year ago. So it, what was formerly known as Community Server is now called Intelligent Community. We had this okay. somewhat awkward problem where we had a lot of people that knew about Community Server. We had a lot of people that knew about um, Intelligent, but we didn't have a lot of people that connected the two together. So right. Oh, wow. What, what, was really, what was really interesting we had a lot of people that thought Community Server was a Microsoft product. Right. And so we decided to rebrand it all, um, change up kind of how we went about the business about a year ago. Um, I don't know if, if you guys were aware of it, but we actually we took on an investor right. in was it 2008. In- Intel? Intel Capital, yeah. yep. And so we, we still offer... Um, licenses for MVPs, regional, Microsoft regional directors, um, user groups, free of charge. But there is no, quote-unquote, free community server product that you can download anymore. Okay. So, yeah, things have evolved there. And, and I got to imagine taking on – and it was not – we're not talking a million bucks. It was, was it 20 million? I'm trying to remember the press release. It's been a couple of years. Yeah, it was a – it was um, – boy, I've learned a lot in the last – a few years just about how businesses operate in this market, just startups, et cetera. And so we we took what's called a $20 million commitment from Intel Capital. Right. We wound up taking a total of $15 million um, to invest in the business, largely for growth, you know, new hires, whatever it may be. Um, and that was August of, August of 2008. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, what's cool is that I mean, yeah, I mean, just perspective-wise from, from our, in our market, I mean, that was called a A round, like a, a series A round of, of, of financing for the business. And most of our competitors are on C, D, E, F rounds, um, which 
you know, most of our competitors are raising thirty, forty, fifty million dollars. We've we've in total raised fifteen million dollars. Um, you know, running a profitability. Um, you know, just trying to be a, a good, upstanding business in the market. Hmm. Well, and it's not like you were really a startup either. You had a successful, profitable business before you took your investment. That's right. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I learned a lot from. You know, I don't know if you guys remember, but when that, early in my career at Microsoft, back in the late 1990s, I was on a small um, small group called the Developer Relations Group, and we actually went out and, and tried to get a lot of these startup companies to find their venture back to, to convert to Microsoft technologies. Right. And it was the best of both worlds for me because it was out in the road, talking to customers, getting excited about technology, but I didn't actually have to sell them anything. I just kind of gave them software to make them happy. Right. Um, but what we saw happen, or what I saw happen at least, was really these, these VCs just running companies into the ground and making, just forcing them to spend money. And so when I started Intelligent, one of the you know, initial, initial objectives was before we ever think about taking any money, we're going to build a profitable business first. We're going to be successful on our own. We're not going to have to use you know, a bunch of VC-backed funds. And, and still, we don't have a VC. We have a, you know, a corporate investor with, with Intel Capital Yes. Um, to really allow us to control more of how the business operated. Yeah, it's a very different mindset. I mean, I've worked on both sides of the fence on that. I've actually been a hard gun for VCs. I've taken their money and, and other projects and so forth. And, it, and it's, my, it's a very different mindset of trying to grow out a business very quickly and profitability comes later versus obviously what you've done, which is a successful functioning business that then took a round of investment to do something with. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our, our objective was was to really go from where we were operating, which was profitable business, predominantly a lot of professional services, not a lot of product mix, and try to really flip that over so that we're doing a lot more product work. And we still have professional services part of our business, but it's less than – it's much less than the kind of product licensing part of the business. And I remember, I think, I think I talked to you guys quite a bit about this when I was kind of really transfixed with deliberating the process of going through, do I take capital? Do I not take capital? Yeah. I, I talked to a lot of people um, just trying to get a lot of peer, peer feedback on what other people have been through. Well, yeah, and it, it, like I said, it's a totally different mindset, but speaking of different mindsets, you know, switching from a services business to a product business or even trying to do them together, they're almost opposing mindsets. You know, the difference between I, I work an hour, I bill an hour versus I put in all these hours, but I make money when I sleep. They, I, I almost feel like they don't get along. You can't do both well. Yeah, you know, I, I was told by a lot of people that the two concepts were very mutually exclusive from yeah. one another. You know, you really can't be both. And I, I got to tell you, there's so much truth in that. I, I talk to a lot of a lot of technology people that are very eager to start software companies, right. and, and the model that they all want to use is, I'm going to be a services business, and we'll we'll do services for customers, and then that'll eventually turn into a product, and we can sell the product, and and that was kind of my, you know, my mindset originally too. And and what really, what a lot of technology people really kind of fail to grasp or really understand is all the legal and intellectual property issues that go along with that. Because right. when you do services work for someone, they own the intellectual property that you've created. You yes. have no right to then take that intellectual property and bundle it up and resell it. Yeah. So it's, it can be very, very contentious at times between even even within a company, like, okay, what is services build versus what is the product build? Because at the end of the day, 
you know, are we building something that we think has a long-term value that we can sell again and again and again, or are we building something one time that's unique for this customer? Yeah, and the way you build software is very different for services versus product mindset. They, they, they just don't get along in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to put stuff into a services product that, that you would never put into a regular product. But I also think it's a grass is greener thing, that everybody in services says, oh, it'd be so great to build product. And there's, I've met lots of product people who are like, you know, I really miss consulting. Yeah. It was so nice when I could just, when every time I spent an hour on something, I got paid for it, as opposed to all these hours I've put into this and I may or may not be paid. Yeah, and, and the, the back-end model of that can be kind of challenging, too, because I think a lot of people neglect to, to recognize that once you build a product, I mean, you've got this support concept to deal with now where customers call you up and they say, you know, I'm, I'm using XYZ feature, it doesn't behave the way I expected it to, uh, we think it's broken. And you're literally having arguments um, with customers about whether or not something, you know, from your perspective was how you designed it to function versus from their perspective how they intended it to, to, to be used within their organization. Yeah, works on my machine. Yeah. Hey, Rob, how has the success of uh, Facebook and MySpace, which I think has really taken a chunk out of blogs, I'm not so sure about forums, but how has that affected your software? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we've, we were fortunate enough to be really the very first vendor in the market um, to offer the concept of, of bundled technology where we took concepts like forums and blogs and wikis and integrated them all together um, and then made them available for developers and to really build on top of, which is, is, is very much something we're carrying forward um, with the concept of the platform work we're doing now. But, you know, the question about Facebook and MySpace, and, and, and to, to larger extent, the introduction of, of a lot of new social technology features in SharePoint and in um, IBM's products, Cisco's products, you know, a number of others. It, it, it's actually really, there's, there's so much opportunity in the market right now. I mean, it is, what we've seen happen is that in the last year, the, the, the type of person that's buying um, this technology their their understanding of how the technology is to be used and how it's valuable to the business has shifted dramatically. But more so than anything else, um, the concepts of forums, blogs, wikis, profiles, those are commodities these days. They're yeah. kind of expected behaviors that you're finding in um, any, any software technology. Yeah. And so the role that we're starting to find ourselves playing um, more frequently is customers aren't buying our software because we have forums, logs, wikis, et cetera. They're buying our software because, you know, trustworthiness, security, um, scalability, platform, kind of being able to build on top of what we've already offered. Um, but really, to a large extent, it's been our investment in analytics. And um, we, we've been able to do some really amazing things with analytics to help customers understand the data. The, the problem that companies had five years ago, I mean, think about, think about this. You know, five years ago, Blogs, forums, wikis, those things kind of existed a little bit on the internet. You really, you really didn't have a lot of data that was kind of created inside of those. Today, you have an incredible amount of data. I mean, you think about how much data that you and I deal with on a daily basis, it's just overwhelming. And so the shift that we're seeing is that these tools really become the, the substructure that allows information to be created by organizations, by people, whatever else. But it's analytics that helps you understand that data and prioritize it. And so the model that I'd love to, to, to use with people is that if you think about the way that the, the past would work where 
you know, I as a um, presenter of information or creator of information would present that information out to an audience, the audience would consume it. And really things have shifted now where the audience isn't just the consumer, but they're also the collaborator of the information. They're, they're also publishing a lot mm. of the data, yeah. um, interacting with it. And so you need tools like analytics to help those consumers more quickly find the information that's most relevant to them. And so it's not necessarily about blogs and forums and wikis, but how do I get the right information in front of the right people at the right moment in time? Yeah, um, I, 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 it, it really occurs to me as I listen to the media talk about Facebook, which is really sort of the shining example of social networking right now, about how much information they know about people because they people willingly post stuff about themselves, their personal lives, you know, products they're using, um, events they go to. There's so much personal information to be mined from a from a database such as Facebook has that I imagine that's what you know businesses are going to use your analytic tools for. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that's when we're when we're working with organizations like like Dell and others. I mean, the, the impetus for them is how do I understand my consumers better so that when you know when when Carl is going through and buying a laptop from Dell's store that we can make inferences based on past behavior actions he's had in the community, um, past behavior actions that other people similar to him with similar purchasing behaviors have made in our community. So we can take content, information, and products and put those right in front of him with the idea being that I'm going to shorten the sales cycle because I'm going to get you the right products um, in front of your face right when you need them. So maybe you're buying a, a, a Dell laptop and um, you know, you're loading up Windows 7 and it says, hey, other people similar to you have chosen to upgrade their laptop from 4 gigs to 2 gigs of memory because they've had better experiences with Windows 7 that way. You know, click here to, to, common, you know, to purchase that. Or, hey, here are kind of the top 10 most frequently asked questions that customers have asked in our community that have purchased both the Dell laptop that you're looking at alongside Windows 7. And so the whole idea is, for a lot of these um, uh, companies, is to use this, this concept called collaborative filtering, um, which is obviously been popularized by companies like Amazon and Netflix, um, to really get more intelligent about their, their consumers' behavior. And the reason for that is that um, when you look at how people behave online these days, there's so much information that I can, I can very quickly leave Dell's site and go straight to Google and start doing my own research to find the information related back to my purchase. And a lot of these organizations recognize that they have shorter and shorter windows in which to interact with their consumers, and they want to provide them with the best information and tools they can. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. I'm trying to understand how your analytics work here. Are you actually looking at what people are writing in forums and trying to build some aggregates around that? Yeah, so we do, we do five specific things. Um, we look at uh, so the five aspects of analytics include sentiment. So um, 
looking at what people are talking about, being able to tell you if there's a, those are positive or negative discussions. That's an interesting uh, concept all by itself. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you interpret a given message as positive or negative? Yeah, highly yeah. subjective. Especially when you're talking about technical people, so it's naturally passive-aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it, also dripping with sarcasm, usually. Yes, so. <laughs> yes, the, the heaps and heaps of irony don't help my interpreter, thanks. The compassionate yeah. developer. Yeah, so I mean, we, we've done a lot of work there. We've, we've built a uh, natural language parsing engine. Um, today it works only with English, but it, it does do um, sentiment analysis. But it also includes, the, the analysis tools also include things like um, collaboration tools, understand how people are working together. It includes support tools to understand, you know, what's the experience like for users when they come into your community. It identifies user types. So um, the, the point I love talking about here is when I was working on ASP.NET, when we first were trying to try to move developers from active server pages to introduce them to ASP.NET, one of the struggles we had was we spent probably six to seven months just going through and identifying, okay, who are the influential people in the active server pages development community that we want to move over or talk to really quickly about, about ASP.NET. And we, you know, call those people up, invite them to labs up in, up in Seattle, really get them excited about the technology. You know, give them 15 minutes with Scott Guthrie and they'd be sold, um, as, as I think everyone learned after the fact. But uh, what's changed is, is with these technologies, rather than taking six to seven months to go identify influencers, you can identify those influencers or those different user types within a matter of minutes using analytics. Um, probably the, the part that I'm most excited about um, as it relates to analytics, and this is, this is kind of, I think, what you guys were alluding to with the amount of information you can collect from people, is around what we call <clears throat> um, uh, engagement analysis. And so... You know, back in 95, 96, when, when tools like Web Trends were coming out, web analytics was defined by page views, page metrics, you know, how often things were being looked at, what types of browsers were being used. And, right. and that, in large part, has been the defining metric that, that organizations have used for the past 10, 15 years now. And um, even look at companies like Adobe that bought Omniture for like one point some odd billion dollars just to get metrics to understand what the behavior of yeah. people online. And um, what, what I've always really been fascinated with was, you know, there's more to online behavior and interaction than just page views. And so what, what engagement analysis does is allows you to really start coloring some of the detail. So the analogy would be, so, so Richard goes into, or, or let, let's, take, let's take Nordstrom's as an example. Take Nordstrom's as, a, as a, um, an example website. Web analytics would tell me how many people came into the front door. Web analytics would tell me the path they went, the different departments they visited, how much time they spent there, you know, with the men's shoes, men's clothing, and then where they exited. And it, it tells me some ancillary data along the way, like what browser type they use, which, I mean, if you think about it from a, a, a source perspective, it's like saying, Richard wears a size 11 Nike shoe when he walks through my store. And how does that affect my, my interactions with him? When, when you think about social analytics, though, social analytics tells me who it was, what they did, what their experience was. So putting those two models together, um, what web analytics fills in is the details around path and pattern. What social analytics does is it says, Richard came into my store. Richard went to men's clothing. Richard looked at a Joseph Abood suit. Again, I, I know what you're, where you're spending your interaction. 
He purchased that suit. He left comments and feedback. Based on comments and feedback that he left, I, I went sentiment analysis against that. I see that it was positive. Based on the fact that Richard's influential in my community, I want to promote that, that feedback because I know that, that peer-level feedback has a high propensity to influence the buying behavior um, of other individuals. So Boy, think that's about really powerful. It's really powerful. I mean, just an- analyzing text that somebody writes and determining whether it's positive or negative is, is seems like a small part of what you're doing. You're actually looking at interaction in terms of what how the person is using the system. Yeah, we're looking at, we're looking at the interactions of how the person is using the system, and then using those interactions to to help shape how information is then delivered. And so. You know, that, that was a very kind of theoretical example. So a concrete example would be um, looking at the work we did with um, the Department of Defense most recently for, for Haiti disaster relief. And um, they used community technology as a way to coordinate all the information. But the problem that we were uniquely able to solve was how do I prioritize the information and um, what I want to get in front of people based on the different stages we are in our community. So do I need to sh- give them satellite imagery? Do I need to give them situ- sit rep reports? Do I need to give them lists of contacts? And being able to mm-hmm. really intelligently prioritize a lot of that data um, makes a huge difference for information consumers, which ultimately just about everyone is becoming an information consumer these days. Yeah. Hey, Rob, if I could shift gears for a minute and talk a little bit about your your days at Microsoft and on the ASP.NET team, working with Scott Guthrie and everything, um, you there there must be a whole lot of stories that you have from uh, from working on that team, either with customers and this has been the theme on the live weekend here so far, is we're trying to get some some stories to, but you know, not not giving any names to protect the guilty. Uh, you know, of, of, of wacky things that you've seen, of crazy problems, of, of unexpected requirements, you know, su- something surprising that, uh, that, if, that you've seen with customers or, or even internally. Oh, man, I have to put on my thinking hat. It's been a while. Um, six years ago, at least, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah six years ago, at least. But yeah, give me, give me a minute. I mean, All I right. don't know if you have any specific, specific, uh, Kind of have, you, have you been looking at anything that, that the ASP.NET team has been doing recently, MVC, or um, any anything there? Yeah, we have. I mean, we've been um, – I say we have. I, in particular, have not been. Um, our team <laughs> has been doing a lot of work with, with MVC most recently, um, building out some, um, some cool mobile capabilities for the platform. Nice. Um, but, uh, you know, the last – you know, I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but um, the, the last kind of development work I did was probably four or five months ago, and I, I was actually playing around with, um, oh, uh, with Mono actually cool. on my Mac, kind of kicking the tires on that. I, I was they, they released that I forget what it's called now, but they had a, a framework that was written in Mono for doing um, development on the iPhone. Mono and Touch, was, yeah, Mono Touch, Mono yeah. Touch, yeah, and I was. I was kind of playing with my C sharp skills and writing some mono touch applications, and that was that was some pretty wicked cool stuff. I got to say that was that was really scratching an itch that I completely forgot I had. Yeah, programming is one of those things that once you do a little of it again, after a while, you remember and want to do a whole bunch more. Yeah. Yes. 
You know, you were describing uh, the one of the projects you worked on earlier on in, in Microsoft trying to get uh, startups engaged with uh, using Microsoft technology. And that all predates stuff like BizSpark and WebSpark now. Have you looked at any of those programs? You know, we've um, I have not, as a consumer of those programs, we've worked with a few of those organizations for their communities, how they interact with their customers. Um, you know, I, when I was at Microsoft, I mean, I, I, I really I recognize things have changed quite a bit since then, but sure. it was very much um, a lot of kind of bootstrapped efforts, which was really a lot of fun. So especially in the late 1990s, <clears throat> it was a lot of bootstrapped kind of marketing, guerrilla marketing type type activities of really going out, getting your hands dirty with a very small kind of almost dedicated SWAT team and, and uh, getting customers excited about the platform. And they did a, I really learned a lot about just, um, you know, how to get people excited about technology. I mean, Microsoft does a, they still do a really good job at it. But I got to say those very up close in personal labs they used to run. Yeah. The SDRs. Did, think, yeah. The, those were, those were a blast. I think those did more to get people on Microsoft technology than any kind of marketing campaign or um, any other activities they had. Because that, that one-on-one time you got with the team, the one-on-one, the one-on-one time you got with the people, it, it was really transformative. Well, you never felt, I've never felt more influential on a product than being in the SDR, you know, where you've got the two or three sort of senior guys in the front of the room leading this thing and sitting behind you are all of the folks who build the product. And, you know, really hammering on a feature of, I'm not going to use it that way. Here's how I'd use that. And, 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 and then you turn around and there's these guys writing notes. You're like, you know, you, be careful what you say. You <laughs> are changing the way this product's going to work. Right. Yeah. I, I yeah, just, was... I feel like Microsoft's more different, is different than that these days. I mean, you've been away for a few years now, but there doesn't have that same feel of sort of guerrilla type marketing on these kinds of things. They tend to be much more orderly. This, you know, BizSpark exists for a reason. It's a structured approach to providing uh, free licenses to startup companies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't really comment on, you know, what they're doing now, because I really just, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I did participate early on when we first formed Intelligent in some of the programs um, that Microsoft had. I, I don't, I, I don't know if it was BizSpark. It might, it actually might have been BizSpark when they were first rolling that out. Right. It was a, it was, for a startup, it was a great program because it gave us access to a lot of Microsoft technologies at, um, at near, near free um, cost to us. But yeah, it, it does feel that it's, it's much more um, programmatized, like, it, I think would probably be the right word, and, lot, and a lot less kind of hands-on, kind of in-your-face, that, that one-on-one level of intensity. So no stories, huh? Can't think of any uh, of those. I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I, I think last time I, we talked, I gave you a lot of my, my good Bill Gates stories that I, that I have. <laughs> um, I don't remember... Holy, no. I, you know, I, I remember just a lot of work. I just remember just working really hard with, with Scott, and Scott was a, a great guy to work for. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that a lot, and I know you guys have talked to them a lot, but it was, um, when I first joined that team, there were, I think, 14 people on the on the ASP.net team, and it was it was intense. And do you guys remember Mark Anders? Yeah, oh, absolutely. sure, yeah, we interviewed yeah. him on the show. Yeah, yeah, I, that was, those were, that was a lot of fun. I remember when, when, when I first joined the ASP.NET team, it was 
Mark Anders, Scott Guthrie, um, and then myself going out and doing a lot of these just, man, just road shows. And, right. Yeah. It's just trying to get people using ASP.net. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, I tell people, like, looking back, I mean, it was truly a startup within Microsoft. Right. It was, it was, so, it was so much fun to be part of it. And it was, um, I think, you know, I, I, I often tell people now that there's, there's, for the people that I know at Microsoft, Scott's obviously still one of the people that really just, Gets it. Gets how to work with customers. Yeah. He got it early on. Um, I, I think he's obviously seen that forward and has uh, seen that carry forward. <laughs> his, his career development is he's a VP now, which is it's cool, but at the same time, pretty amazing. Well, don't you think if you'd stayed at Microsoft this past six years, you'd be a VP now? I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know that... Um, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. I, I don't know that would have been the path for me. I mean, I've I, I really found myself enjoying kind of the startup mentality, you know, the same startup mentality that we have with ASP.net, and that's, that's really what I was looking forward to, forward to doing again. And I, to be honest with you, I can, I can see myself doing it again in the future as well. It's, doing startups is it's so scary, but so fun at the same time. I agree with you, Rob. That's where I, I like to be in the small business where you, you have to do a lot of uh, things all at once. Although the implication yep. you've got there, Rob, is that Telegit is no longer a small business. It's not a startup. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would put it. I mean, that, that's so hard to define. I mean, yes. if you looked at, so I've read a lot of business books in the last few years, but if you looked at kind of the progression path that businesses go through, I mean, we are at the we are at the point where we're being we're a lot more process oriented. There's a lot more discipline around just operationally how we run the business. I mean, the level of fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, reporting. I mean, it's, it, it's, a lot, it's a lot of stuff that, frankly, I, I don't really enjoy. Well, there's a metric right there. The moment you use the word fiduciary alongside your business, you're yeah. not a startup anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> what, what, I, what I actually did is, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I told you guys this, but about a year ago, um, I brought in a CEO and actually brought in a CEO to replace me as really? the CEO of Intelligent. Yeah. I did not know this. Yeah, so and the reason for that was is that we were going through this this business transformation. I found myself spending 90% of my time on finance, on marketing, on sales, right. on areas of the business that I, I really, frankly, didn't enjoy that much, but wanted to learn just because I love learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, really when you step back to the business for a minute and say, okay, What's the best use of my time? We're in a high-growth industry. Right. Is it better for me to be kind of learning on the job, trying to figure out finance and marketing, all these things, or should I bring in someone who's really has a, has a demonstrated expertise there? And so we brought in a, um, a, a CEO that he and I are like the yin and yang of one another. He, is, he knows very little about software development technology. Knows a whole, even though he previously ran and successfully ran a, a very large software organization um, as the CEO, uh, but he's much more of a finance, marketing, sales guy. And so the shift that we've made is that um, it's put me back more in a role of thinking about, you know, technology, innovation, going out and doing a lot of customer and kind of thought leadership stuff in the market and allowing him to run a lot of the operations and day-to-day, kind of how intelligent as a business functions. And I, I've been really thrilled with, um, with, with, just the way that relationship has worked. So he's your Steve Ballmer to, and your Bill Gates. I, I, 
don't know that I would use those two individuals. <laughs> in, in general, in general, I mean, yes. I mean, the, the idea is that, like a partnership of, of people that have, um, I mean, the way we describe it to a lot of people is we cover each other's blind spots. Right. Like what he's really yeah. good at, I'm not really good at. What but I, really I think good there's, at, a, there's a key concept here, which is that, you know, you started the business, you have the original vision of the business, and you've now been able to distill your role back to the visionary role. That's, I mean, it's, I think it's vitally important that leadership provides vision, not just management. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just getting older or what, um, but I think there's a, there's a distinction at some point in your career you recognize that the two aren't necessarily as intricately linked as people like to think. I mean, a lot of people say, I want to be in management. I want to have people reporting to me. Right. And they don't recognize the two aren't necessarily, um, you the know, same leadership thing. and mm. in management you know, they're not really the same thing. No, they're not. They're not at all. And and that you can have leadership in lots of different areas. A talented marketing person is worth their weight in gold. Uh, yeah. You know, a guy who really knows how to sell, a team of effective salespeople, as well as you know, how many great businesses have we known that it was all about their tech support, that mm. if you can't do that role well, if you're a product company, you're crippled as a business. Telerik, like, for example. Yeah. It's a perfect each of example these roles of is important, and they don't have to all be packaged in one person. You need great leaders in each of those roles. Mm. Yep. Uh, the thing that I fear the most, and I see this as, as a consultant in other businesses, is when the vision leaves. That yeah, you, that I, I feel like we're the a business is lost when the vision isn't leading anymore, or the visionary yeah, leaves the company. Yeah, that's that's the piece that I'm watching for the most. And honestly, I'm I'm talking about Microsoft because Microsoft without Bill Gates, show me where the show me. It's not that I don't believe that there's not that there's vision within the company. I think there is, but I want a sense that the vision is leading the business, and I don't feel like it's like that these days. Well, you know, part of the problem is Microsoft's behavior in the marketplace has always been reactionary. They've yeah. never been strong out front with with a technology. They've always waited for technologies to bubble to the surface and then found the, the best of breed and said, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that or we'll buy them or whatever. Yeah, you know what? I've, I've really, one of the things that I've looked at, looked back on recently and reflected on is there was a product Microsoft came out with called Hailstorm, which is the concept of really software as a service and mm. or software-oriented services um, really way ahead of the market. Yep. And they, Arguably and, too far ahead too of the market because ahead. it went away because of that. Exactly. Exactly. But the, the second one is is just mobile. I mean, Microsoft recognized the value of mobile, the importance of mobile way, 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 way early on. Right. And then here comes Apple, super late entrance in the game, and completely out executes them within a matter yep. of, you know, 24 months. And that's, that's the part that worries me. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActorReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActorReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. The thing that stuns me about the iPhone is the development experience is appalling. Well, well relative to what we're used to. And it doesn't yeah. matter. 
It doesn't that matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter at all. 200,000 apps, you know, shoot that issue in the foot right. clearly. If there's that, money yeah. to be made, we'll use whatever tools we have to use. Yeah, the to developer's the pain is not important compared to the customer's experience. Yeah, I, I just, that, I mean, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I thought the days of having to write C code were just done. Yeah. And, near, and here comes Objective-C, which is like, oh, mm. I mean, I just, yeah, it's like it's it. C with a ball peen hammer. Great applications. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and that's the thing is that people are really great products with it, and yeah. and uh, and it it's a damn shame that it's true. So, what do you think about WinPhone Seven and being able to build phone apps in Silverlight? Um. Oh boy. I, I, my, here's here's kind of my two cents on it. So, I, I, we started looking at uh, mobile-based development um, and mobile applications about nine or 10 months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, obviously I'm, I'm now an iPhone big as, as, as long as well as with a bunch of other people within the organization. And um, we spent about, um, I'd say six to seven weeks building an iPhone app in Objective-C. Uh, over the course of a weekend, built a mobile version of that same application is, is a, HTML kind of WebKit experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and decided to throw away any intent of building Silverlight, any intent of building Objective C, and focus 100% of our efforts on WebKit. Um, HTML five wins is what you're saying. Yep, I think so. Interesting. Wow, I'm just I'm fascinated to hear Rob yeah. Howard say yeah. HTML five wins. Well, if you think about it, you know you have the most reach, the most visibility, the that's that's the whole idea behind HTML. I don't, and that's not th- true yet. Well, no, but well, that's that's the idea. I'm a, I'm a vendor now, and so yeah. when I build products, I mean, I have limited resources, limited budget, mm-hmm. and I want to hit the biggest market I can. Mm. And the biggest market that I have right now is a is a web based market, not a um, technology specific market. But uh, but you're projecting the belief that HTML5 will have the broad adoption HTML4 has had. Yeah, which is a fair belief. I mean, it's, it it's, it's a bit of path. Although it could be a I had I had this conversation literally yesterday with uh, with or not yesterday, two days ago with uh, Scott Stanfield on a phone call where I said the problem with HTML5 right now is it's perfect because it hasn't rolled out. Yeah, yeah. right. It's still <laughs> that all the real pain of HTML5 has yet to be felt. The browser incompatibilities, the yeah. you know, deployment issues, like all of the things that ha- that we've forgotten about. Of a, you remember the that we've forgotten about from the early incarnations of HTML4. Oh yeah, because it's been so bloody long, mm-hmm. right? That we're going to feel this pain again coming into HTML5. We just haven't felt it yet because we're in the perfect world right now. I think Colin Melia should call us. Because he just sent me an IM that says, "No, Rob Howard, Silverlight rocks." <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> Silverlight's your friend. No, really, it is. All right, Colin. I am not opposed to Silverlight. I'm not opposed to Flash. I'm not opposed to any any you know specific technology. But I, I actually see those as being very complementary. Um, you know, once they're more ubiquitously available within a lot of your devices to be used to deliver richer experiences. I mean. We're taking the same approach with our um, web-based experience for our, our platform, whether it's analytics or intelligent community, whatever it may be, is that mm-hmm. you know, we, use, we make use of other technologies besides just AJAX and JavaScript and HTML technologies to deliver rich experience. But it's selective, and it's, it's not you know, writing the entire application in one technology set. It's, it's right. using the right technology for the right problem. So we actually use a mix of a lot of different technologies. 
And we had this we had this choice when .NET 1.0 was you know hitting the streets, and should I do a Windows application or should I do a web application? And you know the answer I gave people is well, if a properly architected solution, you can do both with you know reusability and um, not complete reusability. You'll you'll have to do some forking, but but the core part of your application should be able to serve whatever UI you're 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 putting on it, and Maybe there, you know, as if you really want to get the most reach, you want to be able to leverage all of that stuff. And I, you know, if it weren't for Apple locking into the iPhone with Objective C, you might be able to, you know, uh, except for a web application, of course. You know, you know what I'm trying to say is you can do both. You can do all of it. Well, it seems like Silverlight yeah. has gotten around now, and, and it seems to be a big push to have Silverlight running on more platforms. So the idea that I, you know, could I really write once, run many? Is this is this coming true? Ultimately, it would be great if, of course, Silverlight ran on the iPhone, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Mr. Jobs has made that abundantly clear. Yeah, he won't even allow <laughs> Flash on there, so. Well, I can understand not allowing Flash. <laughs> You know, there's no better way I find a destabilized computer to install Flash. Oh, come on, man. That's uh, ridiculous. Yeah, I, I think they should put Flash in the iPhone, too. I can't believe they haven't done that. <sighs> yeah, but it, but his I think his core argument about the instability of Flash was fair. I don't and know. Flash I, has I, problems, and it has always had problems. Yeah, it's got problems, but it's but it's so ubiquitous, though. I mean, it yeah. does run, and it does work on everything. Except when it doesn't. You know, how many times do we have machines where Flash doesn't work? I haven't seen any machines where Flash doesn't work. Is this a problem? Rob, yeah. is this I'd a problem Apple for you? Focus on the carrier. What? I'd yeah. rather that Apple focus on changing carriers. Yeah, if you're going to fight one Flash. hard problem, let's fight AT&T. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that's okay, the problem to fight. Does Flash not work? Is Flash bro? Is that what you're saying, Richard? Oh, Flash I could, I've got a machine at home right now that for Flash is not running. You know, it, it's just Flash gets sulky sometimes. It depends on the computer. Yep. It's Mark a, Andrews will probably call you in a minute. Yeah, but you know, they, and their solution, I find that these days the way Adobe's been addressing that is updating Flash so constantly that you're constantly trying to replace bits. Mm. As long as as long as long Flash doesn't suck in uh, PDF, the PDF viewer, yeah. Acrobat Reader, there's yeah. a virus if I've ever seen one. There hey, you go. if you've got a question, <laughs> oh, we do have a call. We got a call. Hey, Colin, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Hey, Colin. So do you guys know each other? Uh, no, we've not met, no. No. Well, Colin works for Microsoft, and uh, I, I take it you're here to, to defend Silverlight. Actually, no, I don't, actually don't work for Microsoft. Oh, that's right. I'm no? sorry. You yeah. don't work for Microsoft. You're an independent. But oh, you're actually, Microsoft no, I was going to say like I've come about Flash, because we, we have a major application I've been working with for some years, and it just broke yesterday. And we found the reason was uh, it, it related to Silverlight, sorry, Flash 10.1. So we've always had these constant problems with Flash uh, as well. So okay, it's, fair it's, enough. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I think I think Silverlight's going to. I mean, the one thing that Microsoft has. I mean, not the one thing, but you know, Microsoft has such better discipline around building platform technology with a recognition that what they build, they recognize that in the future it can't break when they upgrade. It. I mean, that's one. That's yeah. one of the problems. I think they, they really got right with They have that. nailed backward compatibility, that's yeah, for sure. It's yeah. like backwardly compatible to a fault. Yeah. To the point where even the customers say, please break and get rid of some of this crap. <laughs> uh, I, there was an interview um, at the last mix conference with Scott Guthrie after the main event where they talked about the fact that they really wanted to push forward with hardware acceleration with Silverlight, but they couldn't because there's so many little nuances 
that go with the graphic card drivers, it's very difficult to do that. So uh, Flash is trying to push the boundaries a bit ahead of Silverlight, but I think that hopefully maybe in the next version of Silverlight we'll see something a bit more interesting in that regard. In terms of hardware acceleration? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I was at the recent uh, WebNot War, Make WebNot or conference in Montreal, Microsoft conference there, and they um, they uh, they had some spare slots, and we really wanted to have a kind of a throwdown between HTML5, Flash, and Silverlight, but we didn't quite make it because there was a lot of interest, and in, you know, seeing blood spilt, I think, over the subject. Hmm. But I, I think there's room, there's probably room for both, and I think it really depends on the architecture of your application. If you build it right, you can certainly use, you can talk to backend services. I think things are moving. It's more towards moving towards the cloud. And the front end, you know, you can be flexible on the front end if you do the proper job. Well, Half Thor agrees with you. He says Flash is evil. I don't install any Adobe product on my system. <laughs> Interesting. Not alone out there. I don't know. I, you know, I never had a problem with it. But um, then again, you know, it's it's good to hear alternative realities. Yeah. So, Rob, if you're, if you're definitely in the HTML5 camp, um, what do you make of the fact that the standard yet has yet to be kind of completed? Well, I want to be, I want to be careful with, with stating that I'm in any one camp. I mean, I'm definitely not in the um, HTML5-only camp. I think, I think my, you know, my, my comment as it relates to mobility was that I would much rather deliver a HTML-based mobile experience than a you know, Flash-slash-Silverlight-dominant mobile experience. Just because you're not locked in. Yeah, just because you're not locked in. And, yeah, so and I think, the, that, again, from a vendor, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reach the widest audience possible. When I see things like um, BlackBerry, when you've got um, iPhone, when you've got um, Palm, when you've got a number of these other vendors that are saying, hey, we're going to support this WebKit HTML-based view of content, um, that's, that's very exciting for me as a person building product. Well, so the point being, you're not an HTML5 advocate. You really want a write once, run any solution, and you have belief that HTML5 will be the one. I think it's going to get us closer than anything else. See, the thing, the problem I have with that is that really, with Silverlight, it is write once, run anywhere, except for some com uh, features on, on the latest version with Silverlight 4. Whereas with HTML5, I'm, I'm very, uh, I would be concerned that you know, does this feature, this HTML5 feature, is it enabled on this on this particular browser? Is it really? Is it saying markup run, can run everywhere? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, we'll have to wait and see on some of that, won't we? Yeah, this is the thing. My point about HTML5 is that it's in its perfect state right now, where it's essentially not a shipping product, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and the reality is going to be interesting. I what I fear, I, this is just my age, right? I wrote that if IE if Netscape yep. if you know code yep. in, in JavaScript, and and I still want to gouge my eyes out over it. Like it was just so painful to to get that way, and I and I fear we're going to get there again. I think that um, a lot of um, a lot of people coming out of university and college actually like that kind of thing because it's really they like that kind of thing. To, it's a conquest, and I think that's one reason why Microsoft technologies have a harder time penetrating some of the the younger market. And the younger market is attracted to things like HTML5 need... and that kind of thing because it's really a challenge. It's something really to get your teeth into. They need uh, something to some something to conquer. Yeah. I I, I kind of. I, I have that feeling from time to time, too. Some of my favorite code to write has been plumbing code, but that kind of plumbing code, no. I mean, that's the kind of stuff where you've got to look at every single situation, every line of code, and analyze it and say, is that you know going to work on this and that? I, that's not fun to me. 
But you know, you're duplicating effort, right? You're you're doing the same thing multiple times in minuscule different ways to handle the different browser types, and that yeah. was never any fun. But there is one thing to be said about writing plumbing code: is that, and maybe not a, maybe not a, that. That's not really plumbing code. That's just more like forking and if then. But you know, writing some of that low level stuff really helps you understand how the computer works. You know, which is always a good thing. But I think yeah. I think maybe that's where the pleasure lies. Colin, in yeah. doing that kind of stuff is you really get to understand the the bits and bytes. Yeah, I think it doesn't hurt the ego building. Either. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's good for the ego it and really get to master the master it for sure. Yeah, when I was in the ASP.NET team, my uh, the the features that I worked on, like membership and caching, all plumbing features. I didn't want to have to deal with any of the UI user control stuff or server control stuff because. I don't know. It just wasn't as appealing. I, I do think the plumbing, the plumbing aspects of technology, at least for me, have always been more appealing because the types of problems that you're solving, um, can, are, are the types of problems that are being used by other people to do new and interesting things. Yeah, I agree. And you know, if somebody takes all that stuff off your plate, then you know, he just didn't want to be a, to blame for web forms. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> It's a different issue. You know, and, and, and Silverlight is just heading down the same conflict path with running. You know, there's a different version of Silverlight running on the phone. It's not very different, but there mm-hmm. are some differences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and now there's rumor that's going to show up on set-top boxes. When you start getting onto different platforms, you're going to have to start writing conditional code around, well, what's my available screen size? Oh, I don't what know. What are these things going to run? I don't think it's conditional code. I think it's just a different set of XAML for, for you know, each platform and... The the basic binding and and uh, middle tier stuff is I I believe is going to work really well across Silverlight on different platforms. Sure, and if you take like the the Bing Map Silverlight control that was designed for desktop, it actually does run on the phone, even though it wasn't designed to run on the phone. Right, mm-hmm. there will Often be an update do. to it, but it does actually work. So there's a, I mean, Silverlight has become more of a subset of uh, uh, WPF lately. And yes, certainly on the phone, it's more like Silverlight 3 plus or minus right. a little bit. So plus and minus. Yeah, plus and minus, yes. Like the sockets are missing, for example. Mm. But that's, uh, I think it's going to come closer and closer. I, 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 I don't know. I feel more comfortable that that's a platform for me that I can work with and know it's just going to work than right. getting all kind of wiry with HTML5. <laughs> you know, that's just my opinion. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's good. I suppose I'm just being lazy in some respects because it's so much easier. <laughs> well, well and, I, and I don't want to use the ease of coding defense. No, no, no. It's all about productivity, if you ask me. It's about... Yeah. Except you know? that iPhone deflated that balloon. Yeah. Right? I mean, we're, we've had evidence now okay. that ease of coding doesn't set the success of a product. Well, if there's... I think the way to, way to say it is that if there's real money to be made... Mm-hmm. You know, people will be willing to suffer. Well, and therein lies the, the, the potential promise of WinPhone 7. It, it, the proof will be in the pudding. If in the next two years, WinPhone 7 races past uh, iPhone, I, I guess I'll believe. I just, it seems unlikely. Well, maybe both things have to be true. You have to have a market, obviously, or you don't have any any reason to write code. Right. Uh, and at the same time, if your developer tools are easier to use, you're going to be that much more productive. So you'll be getting stuff to market faster and arguably more stuff will come to market. But uh, I think that is true. I just don't think it's necessarily required as is what in we're Microsoft's saying. defense too, I think Microsoft always does better when they have a big competitor to go out and beat. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, guys, we're just about coming down to the end of this uh, hour. Rob, is there anything else that you wanted to throw in and 
tell the listeners before we sign off? No, I mean, I just, you know, obviously appreciate the opportunity to be on the show again. Love talking with you guys. Um, Ditto. Hopefully we bump in, into each other again at a conference sometime soon. I, 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 I do expect at some point to start going back to some of the developer conferences like PDC and Tech has. Sure. Um, so. If not for the parties, you know. If not for the party, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Colin, thanks so much for calling in. My pleasure. All right, guys. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.